0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an independent educational grant from Nervo Nordisk. The supporter has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty for this programme. This session will be focusing on renal outcomes in diabetes and how clinicians can help to prevent diabetic nephropathy in their patients. We will begin with a quick overview of recent data and then join Professor Carol LaRue to hear his advice on optimising clinical practice.
1: If you're already familiar with recent trials, do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview.
0: I'm James Bannister and joining me today is Emma Phillips. Hello. So, diabetic kidney disease is gaining increasing attention as of late. Research shows that poor glycemic control, including both chronic hyperglycemia and frequent hypoglycemia, is associated with a progressive loss of renal function. However, a number of trials have reported positive outcomes for specific antidiabetic agents. Here with an overview is Emma.
1: Yes, so a number of recent cardiovascular outcomes trials have included renal endpoints in their secondary outcomes. These include SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and DPP-4 inhibitors. Starting with the SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin, in EMPA-REG outcome, 7,028 patients were randomised to receive empagliflozin, 10 or 25 milligrams, or placebo, which was added to optimal care for type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. The five-point composite renal outcome of this study included the following. Rate of incident or worsening nephropathy, defined as progression to macroalbuminuria, Doubling of creatinine level, estimated glomerular filtration rate of less than 45 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, the initiation of dialysis or death from renal disease. Embrogliflozin was found to reduce incidence or worsening nephropathy by 12.7% versus placebo, which was 18.8%. In this trial, empagliflozin reduced the risk of progression to macroalbuminuria by 38%, the risk of a doubling of creatinine by 44%, and the risk of starting renal replacement therapy by 55%. In patients with prevalent kidney disease, the use of empagliflozin reduced the risk of cardiovascular death by 29%, risk of all-cause death by 24%, and risk of all-cause hospitalisation by 19%. Dapagliflozin saw similar effects in DECLARE-TIMI58. In this cardiovascular trial, a secondary composite renal endpoint evaluated a sustained decline of at least 40% in EGFR to less than 60 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, or development of end-stage renal disease, which is defined as dialysis for at least 90 days, kidney transplantation, or confirmed EGFR of below 15 millilitres per 1.73 metres squared. This trial observed a 46% reduction in sustained EGFR decline and a 59% reduction in developing end-stage renal disease. Finally, canogliflozin also recently explored renal-specific outcomes in the CREDENCE trial. This was a double-blind, randomised trial of patients with established albuminuric chronic kidney disease to receive either canogliflozin or placebo. The primary outcome was a three-point composite endpoint composed of doubling of serum creatinine death from renal or cardiovascular causes, or development of end-stage renal disease, defined as the need for dialysis or transplantation, or a sustained EGFR below 15. The trial concluded that the relative risk of this composite outcome was 30% lower with canagliflozin compared to placebo.
0: Moving now to GLP-1 receptor agonists, three recent cardiovascular trials included renal endpoints in their secondary outcomes. In the LEADER trial, 9,340 type 2 diabetic patients with cardiovascular disease or high cardiovascular risk were randomly assigned liraglutide or placebo. A pre-specified analysis of the trial's secondary outcomes observed a 22% reduction in the rate of new or worsening nephropathy after 3.8 years. SUSTAIN-6 also looked at the rate of new or worsening nephropathy as a secondary outcome. In this trial, new or worsening nephropathy occurred in 3.8% of patients receiving semaglutide and 6.1% of those in the placebo group. Finally, the REWIND trial of dulaglutide included a wider microvascular composite as a secondary outcome. This included renal components, such as first occurrence of macroalbuminuria, a sustained decline in EGFR of 30% or more from baseline, or the requirement for chronic renal replacement therapy. An exploratory post-hoc analysis of the trial found that the renal composite outcome occurred in 17.1% of patients in the dulaglutide group and 19.6% of patients in the placebo group. Overall, these trials indicate that GLP-1 receptor agonists may have a nephroprotective effect. However, experts call for renal-specific long-term trials of GLP-1 receptor agonists to confirm if such an effect exists.
1: Finally, a range of trials explored the effects of DPP-4 inhibitors on renal outcomes. However, none demonstrated a significant impact on the reduction of disease progression. No significant effect on renal outcomes was observed in the TECOS, timi or examined cardiovascular trials. For Carmelina, which investigated the cardiovascular and renal safety of linagliptin, no significant effect on kidney outcomes was observed across both EGFR function and age subgroups.
0: To place all these data in context and provide recommendations on how you can optimise your patients' outcomes, we join Stephanie Leonida with Professor Carol LaRue.
2: Thank you for joining us, Professor LaRue. Looking across the continuum of diabetes care, how often does renal disease co-occur with other complications and comorbidities? Are we able to identify patients at a high risk of developing diabetic kidney disease?
3: If we look at patients in a diabetes clinic, uh, it is the renal complications of diabetes is all too frequent. We record that in approximately 20 to 40% of patients will at least have increased urine albumin-creatinine ratios or may even have a combination of increased urine albumin-creatinine ratios together with a reduction in renal function. Now, the concern is that when these co-occur with type 2 diabetes, it really drives the mortality of patients with type 2 diabetes. So it's very important that we are able to identify it early and treat it effectively. Our problem is that we don't have good predictors of which patients when they diagnose with type 2 diabetes will develop the complications um, and we now know that type 2 diabetes is not one disease that really this it's multiple diseases at least there's five different subtypes as has recently been described by group et al from lund um, and and What we now see is it's the group with severe insulin resistance diabetes that are more likely to develop the complications such as diabetic kidney disease. So we're just not good enough to diagnose them early, but when we do diagnose them with the complication, we really need to act quickly and effectively. And we now have those tools, those medications and treatments available to us.
2: Now on to my second question. We've recently seen a number of different cardiovascular trials report positive results for renal endpoints, both for GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors. Are there any conclusions we can draw from these data, or are they only useful as signposts for future trials?
3: The recent trials, both with the GLP-1 receptor agonists as well as the SGLT-2 inhibitors, have been incredibly encouraging. Because not only do these trials show that in patients with type 2 diabetes, we can control their glycemia and even have some weight loss. It also shows that we can focus on the complications of diabetes, such as diabetic kidney disease and not only reduce the progression, but sometimes even reverse some of the signs and um, biological and metabolic um, parameters. So it's been incredibly encouraging, and it's really changing the way we are thinking about type 2 diabetes. And therefore, both the American Diabetes Association and the European Association for Study of Diabetes have highlighted that if patients have either cardiovascular disease or chronic renal Uh, disease, chronic kidney disease, and that the medications such as the sglt 2s and the GLP-1 agonists should be considered as second line after metformin. And that's changing our clinical guidance and our clinical treatment options. So these clinical trials have really impacted on clinical care.
2: Thank you. Turning now to DPP-4 inhibitors. Recent trials such as Carmelina indicate that these agents do not feature any nephroprotective effects. Should this influence the decision to prescribe DPP4 inhibitors to patients with established kidney disease?
3: DPP-4 inhibitors have been slightly disappointing when it comes to the complications of type 2 diabetes. These are good medications that are well tolerated and have good glycemic effects, but we don't see either the cardiovascular benefit or the renoprotective benefits that we see with either the SGLT2 inhibitors or the GLP-1 agonists. Um, therefore, it would not be a second line agent um, that I would consider in my practice. However, in those patients with very um, severely impaired renal function, where we want to control glycemia, they may still have a place because they're very well tolerated with very low, some, uh, very low uh, side effect profiles. And specifically, linagliptin you know, in this instance is a medication that would come to mind.
2: And now to my next question, guidelines recommend SGLT2 inhibitors for patients with established renal impairment, but what else can clinicians do to help prevent progression of kidney disease?
3: The SGLT2 class um, is very often recommended um, second line for patients with renal impairment or patients uh, with renal damage. Um, But it's important for us to think about what else we can do as well. And certainly, the GLP-1 agonists are a very good option. And we now know that the combination of SGLT2s together with um, GLP-1s, as shown in the SUSTAIN-9 study, have additional benefits. So therefore, we can not only have better glycemic control, uh, we also have additional weight loss. And I think that the weight loss aspect of uh, patients with diabetic kidney disease is really an opportunity for us to drive this disease back, uh, hold it, or maybe even reverse it. So we can see that um, treatment options, even such as bariatric surgery for patients with diabetic kidney disease, also hold a lot of promise. Um, and of course it's when we combine bariatric surgery with medications such as SGLP2s or GLP1s that we may have have even additional benefits. So certainly what we want to do is get optimal metabolic control, get optimal weight management, and therefore of course also control blood pressure and lipids um, to really afford our patients the most benefit.
2: Thank you for your response. Now, the next question is, in your experience, are there any specific strategies that can help patients meet multifactorial targets, such as blood pressure? For example, have any of your patients prescribed a useful tool to implement lifestyle changes?
3: Lifestyle changes are the cornerstone of chronic disease management. This is true for type two diabetes, for hypertension, for obesity, and dyslipidemia. However, lifestyle changes on their own is often not enough when we deal with these chronic diseases. Therefore, What we really need to look at is how can we combine lifestyle changes together with medication. The best option here, of course, has been illustrated by the STENO 2 study that showed by just using good medications, um, such as ACE inhibitors, statins, metformin, and of course, now we have GLP-1 agonists as well as SGLT-2 inhibitors, we can really drive down chronic disease. So therefore, it's about doing things together and not one against another.
2: And now my final question, unfortunately, the progressive nature of kidney disease means that a number of patients will progress to end-stage disease, where metformin, SGLT2 inhibitors and other treatments become contraindicated. For these patients, what glucose-lowering treatments are recommended?
3: So in patients with severe renal impairment it is best to work very closely with our nephrology colleagues. There are limitations of the medications that we have available, but that often reflects the fact that they've not been tested in patients with GFRs below 15, rather than them having many problems at that low GFR level. So therefore, together with our nephrology colleagues, we can often use some of the medications off-license provided these patients are monitored very carefully. In general terms, however, we do not use metformin if the GFR is below 30. We can use sulfonylureas at lower GFRs, but we must make sure there's no hypoglycemia. Pioglitazone can be used in renal impairment, but we have to be cognizant of fluid retention. DPP-4 inhibitors, especially linagliptin, can be used at much lower GFR levels. We now know that the GLT-1 analogs can be used even if the GFR is above 15. And SGLT-2 inhibitors um, on the European license at the moment and makes them uh, not usable or off-license below a GFR of 45. But of course, we now have a level one evidence with a credence study where patients were recruited with GFRs above 30. So therefore, we're waiting for the license change. So in general, we have to be very careful. We have to work with our nephrology colleagues in this instance. But it's important that we are able to give our patients the optimal Um, metabolic control with the lowest risk of complication.
2: Thank you for joining us today, Professor LaRue.
0: And on that note, this brings us to the end of today's time. To summarize what we've learned, SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to reduce the risk of progression in renal disease and is now recommended as second-line treatment to patients with established renal disease. GLP-1 receptor agonists have exhibited renal protective effects from the viewpoint of secondary outcomes in cardiovascular trials. However, more study is needed to draw any hard conclusions on this class's renal effect.
1: If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps or stream individual episodes from our website. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at DKIPractice. You can also access all our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thank you for listening.
0: And thank you for joining us. We hope you found this podcast beneficial. If you have any further questions, please do send us a tweet or an email. And we look forward to joining you for our next session on the co-occurrence of obesity in diabetes.